0: Hello, friend, and welcome to the U Turn podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, a speaker, and a best selling author of the book U Turn Get Unstuck, Discover Your Direction, and Design Your Dream Career. I wrote the U Turn book and created this podcast to help you reconnect to who you truly are at your core. And that's why every single week I bring you a guest on with the intention of helping you upgrade your confidence in work and in love. I'm also so excited to say that this episode has been sponsored in part by our friends over at Soul CBD. This is the only CBD company I have come to really trust with my wellness. They have 0 THC, meaning you can't get high from their products. They're organically farmed and they're gluten-free. I love sleep, and when I don't get it, I feel like my entire day, my entire week, my entire life is thrown off. And during these times of stress, I started taking Soul CBD's sleepy gummy before bed, and I swear by them. Most nights, all I need is a half of a gummy, and these little babes have put my sleepless nights behind me with one delicious, fruity bite. Their unique blend of CBD, CBN, and terpenes helps you fall asleep faster, stay asleep longer, and improve your overall quality of sleep. I always wake up refreshed. It's my- my new bedtime besties. So our friends over at Soul CBD, I contacted them and I got a discount code for 15% off your order. Just head on over to AshleyStahl.com slash soul. That's ashleystah dot slash S O U L to access our special page with them and don't forget to use the code YouTube turn at checkout. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N. Now let's get into this week's episode. U-Turn friends, it's Ash. And today I am spotlighting one of my absolute favorite podcasts on the internet. It's called The Unmistakable Creative, and it's hosted by Srini Rao. Um, Srini Voss Rao is his full name. And the show is just Awesome, because Srini provides timeless wisdom, practical insights, candid conversations with insanely interesting humans from every field under the sun. And he's really incredible as an interviewer because he manages to say the things that we're thinking that we're afraid to say out loud. And he somehow manages to ask questions that pull information out of people that is so real and so vulnerable. In fact, he interviewed me when my book came out And I don't think anyone has asked me such real and deep questions on a podcast. I shared so much more in my interview with him than I ever do. And I think that's just about his interview skills. He's really not just about you going into that quick formula for success, but also helping your inner artist thrive. So I asked Serini to kindly provide one of his favorite episodes so that I could expose you to the work and magic that you'll find on the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. And this particular episode is with Greg Hartle and he talks about how to live and how to die well. Um, just brilliant on another level. Um, when the recession started in 2008, Greg walked out of his door with 10 bucks a laptop, and three goals. He wanted to visit all 50 states, work one-on-one with 500 people, and start a business in an industry he knew nothing about. But the caveat was that the only resources he could use were the $10 and his laptop. No existing relationships, connections, resources. He has such an incredible story, so inspiring. So without further ado, the Unmistakable Creative Podcast.
1: In this special two-part episode, Greg Hartle, a mentor and friend who played an instrumental role in the development of Unmistakable Creative, returns to the show for one of the year's most riveting and thought-provoking conversations about how to live well and die well. This episode is filled with so much wisdom. It's like a course in entrepreneurship, creative confidence, and living an impactful life all in one podcast. Chances are you'll want to revisit it again and again. So let's get to the show. Greg, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me back on. I gotta say I'm I'm a little nervous. It's been a while.
1: <laughs> well, it's it's kind of weird even to to have to introduce you to the audience because you've played such a, a formative role in uh the development of Unmistakable Creative. You mean know, the name Unmistakable Creative was actually your idea. And I mean you've, you know, been here as a, a mentor, a partner, an advisor for such a long time and a friend before that. You know, we met early on, you know, via Twitter when your $10 on a laptop project started. But, you know, Mm -hmm. as I've gotten to know you over the years, I I knew there's so much more to your story than what, you know, people have seen through your avatar on the internet and through this one project. I think we've, we've only seen one dimension of who you are and what you're up to, at least as far as the public is concerned. Mm-hmm. And so this time, really what I wanted to do is a much deeper dive into, you know, your entire story and your entire experience and everything that has led up to, to where you're at today. So, you know, for people who have no idea who you are, because we do have a lot of new listeners, you know, say, w- that have, have become listeners of the show in the last year. Can you tell us kind of a bit about yourself, your background, your story, and how that has led you to everything that you're up to now?
2: Boy, that's a deep question, you know, and and uh, a lot to explore there. But it, I, I would start by first of all, one of the things that I is has always plagued me is I don't particularly like definitions of a human being. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't particularly like labels and putting in a box because I think human beings are complicated they're beautiful. They're, they're worth exploring in so many unique ways than, than their titles. So, but obviously to live in a capitalist society and to have marketplaces and an exchange of value, we often need to do that through titles and and other things of that nature. So right off the bat, you know, it's a hard question. It's always been a hard question. In fact, you just asked me, you texted me a couple of weeks ago asking (laughs) me what, what, are you called or what do you <laughs> refer to yourself as? And I said, I don't know. You uh-huh. know, and I really don't. In fact, if you go to graycardle.com you'll read an entire, you know, Long essay on me basically saying in one way or another, <laughs> don't label me and I can't define myself. So right. that's always a tough question. But if, if you look at the practicality, there are there are some very clear uh, labels and things that make up my life. You know, I've been a long time entrepreneur, started my first business when I was 22, got into business when I was 19. You know, being 37 now, you can do the math. It's been a long time since I've been in this game. And, uh, you know, I've built multiple very successful tech companies, software companies. I I've experimented in several other arenas, manufacturing, apparel, everything, service-based businesses, everything from cleaning companies to to real estate development. You know, building ski resorts and other things. So, if anything, I'm an experimenter. I, mm. I love experimenting. I love I love uh, trying things. I love exploring myself, and I love love exploring the world. But, you know, a, a lot of people, of course. In the public world, now that we have social media and so forth, know me as from my $10 in a laptop project where I traveled around the country visiting all 50 states. I started with only a $10 bill in my laptop and rebuilt my entire life after having donated everything I owned to see, you know, after the economic collapse, what is really possible in America still? Is the America dream still American dream still alive? What's possible? Who's building it? How are they building it? And how are they surviving and how are they thriving? You know, the, the public knew me. Mostly from that, because mostly everything else I do is behind the scenes, and that project required public attention. But even after that project ends ended, I, I'm still not much in the public now. But that that has to do more uh, with health related issues than anything. So you know, it, it's a complicated. It's been a complicated uh, road because I've experimented with so many things. It's always hard to define or pick or choose any one thing to to explain who I am. Hmm.
1: Okay, so I, I want to talk about the idea of labels, but what I want to do before we do that is actually look back long before your entrepreneurial journey started mm-hmm. and look back at the formative experiences of your life, some of which I happen to be privy to, but I don't think our audience is. The ones that, you know, growing up, you know, childhood, all of those the things that have influenced and shaped mm-hmm. a lot of the decisions you've made and who you've become as a person.
2: Yeah, you know, if, if, if I had to define anything as uh, uh, purpose, which I'm not too keen on the idea that, that any of us know what our purpose here is. I think that's kind of a, a, a man-made fallacy, but let's just pretend that it's true. I would say that my purpose, I've made it my purpose to make to help individuals who are unnecessarily suffering stop suffering. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not the person probably to go to if, if, if you're trying to help the starving or if you're, you know, trying to fix the water crisis, or, or things of that nature. Although I've certainly contributed, I, I built a micro lending program. In Uganda, the very first one, in fact, and was part of uh, a, a project to build orphanages in Juarez, Mexico, one of the one of the most harsh environments in our world. So I, I've done those things to a certain degree, but I'm, I've never been the leader of those things. I've just con- made contributions in my own unique way. But the one thing that I have been a leader on is is helping people that experience what I would consider unnecessary suffering. It, it, it's people that have the resources available. It's the people that have the uh, wherewithal. The people that have the, the intelligence, the people that have the tools handy to live the life they want to live who, who still find themselves suffering in, mm-hmm. in many respects. And, and I think the reason that that's become my life's purpose is because I realized that that could have been my life very easily. You know, I, I gave a talk at the Instigator Experience, which you and I put on, in LA two years ago. And the, and the main message of that talk was your, your temporary circumstances do not have to become your permanent reality. And, and that concept is very interesting to me. You know, your, your temporary circumstances do not have to become your permanent reality. And I believe I gave some examples in there of things like, you, know, you find yourself with no money, that's temporary. Mm-hmm. But what happens is you become poor and that's permanent. Or you find yourself you know, going through a, a breakup and, and oftentimes that turns into more of a permanent, you know, I'm unworthy mm-hmm. of someone's love or attention, right? So so I think that stems from my childhood, really. You know, I, I had a very rough upbringing. I honestly um, do not recall a single positive, happy memory from my childhood. And, you know, I, I grew up extremely poor and I grew up to single mother of three who was not educated, who did not go to college, who was literally working, uh, you know, part-time minimum wage jobs the majority of my life. I had, you know, a father who left us when I was five, who was a major alcoholic. You know, I, I didn't really have figures in my life that took care of me or anything of, of that nature or, or never taught me to be an adult. Even I explained, you know, my mother, is the best mom. But if I'm honest, she's one of the worst parents. And you know, there, in, in my mind, there's a huge difference. My mom is very encouraging. She's always let me do what I wanted to do and go after what I wanted to go after. She's always been loving and caring and supportive. She is there to help anyone with anything, always. However, she just didn't have the skills to raise children. You know, she didn't know how to help you know, children become significant members of society, etc. So, you know, my childhood was incredibly rough and and I remember having a lot of, you know, temporary experiences that could have be, defined me and could have been permanent. Everything from being so poor that we had no furniture in our home. You know, I would not allow people to come over to my house because we literally had no furniture. I slept on a foam mattress. We had no sofas, no chairs, no television, nothing. You, you know, we we had those types I had those types of experiences. I had so many experiences at school that were you know, being made fun of or criticized or, or things of that nature. Now, the one thing that I had that always got me out of that was is I had always been a good athlete. So I realized that there were games you could play. You know, I, I could, and we moved a lot. I never went to the same school for more than a year. You know, my life was up in the air constantly. And But what I always learned was is that I could always make friends. And 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 the re- the way I could always make friends was to be good at things And by being good at things, people always wanted to be on my team or they wanted me to be the captain or the leader or or things of that nature. And that started with sports, but it it transferred over to a lot of other things in business, et cetera. And I just happened to be lucky enough to be born with a very high level of intelligence and a very high level of talent that allowed me to use these these temporary circumstances and make sure they never became my permanent reality. But it wasn't really, of course – the intelligence or the talent, what I had to do was work on my mind and my mindset mm-hmm. so that those things didn't define me and so that I could utilize them and be, and become resilient and resourceful instead. And I, I think a lot of you know these negative childhood experiences you, you know translated into me having a very rough childhood, but a very smartly navigated adulthood once I flipped the switch. Once I got out of being a street kid, involved in gangs, doing drugs, selling drugs, you know, hanging out on the street, never going to school, never really caring what anyone thought of me, into, into saying to myself, you know, this strategy is not going to work in adulthood. Mm-hmm. And, and I need to change. Now, I was extremely fortunate also to have a couple that entered my life when I was 19 years old that became parent figures to me, that, that that paid for me to attend college and, and go to college, and take college courses, who who gave me a salaried position within their company after I demonstrated to them that I could that I could produce and and who invited me into their home and into many scenarios where all of a sudden I was having conversations with mayors and governors and other successful business people. And and what happened is, is in in those environments, because I was out of the negative environments. And I was in these very uh, positive environments. What was happening is, is I was finding myself to be I, I started having these experiences where I would observe you know the observer effect, I would observe myself in these experiences, and I would say, "You know what? I'm just as smart as these people right here. Mm-hmm. I'm just as capable as these people right here. I, it, all the things that these people are doing are possible for me. And that, you know, and, and by having that, that couple that really became parent figures to me and put me in that environment, all of a sudden it opened me up to a whole new world, which became my adult life. Hmm.
1: Why do you think that so many people who would come from such a background, hell, even people who don't come from such a background, end up letting temporary things become so permanent in their lives? Like what causes that and how can it be prevented
2: Well, I think if we had the correct answer to that, we would have (laughs) solved that problem. And unfortunately, you know, human life is very complicated and human life interacting in environments is very complicated. So I I think it's everything. Mm -hmm. The honest answer is it's everything. Some people aren't born intelligent. Some people don't have talent. You know that factors in. Some people get you know in the right situation at the right time. Some people have somebody like I had you know that enter your life at a at a formative time who reshape things for you. Mm-hmm. Some people get therapy. Some people you know the list is endless. Wes Moore, who is a fabulous author and human being, wrote a book that I don't recall the name of, but it, but it was a book in which he was watching the news one night. There was a gentleman by the name of Wes Moore, which was his name, Mm -hmm. who grew up in his same neighborhood, who was in jail for being part of a murder. And he decided to reach out to the guy and find out what happened in his life. And he wrote a book about it, which basically showed the two paths of both Wes Moores. Because this Wes Moore that was the author was a Rhodes Scholar, was doing work for the White House, was served in the military was an outstanding citizen by all you know external measures and here you have this other guy westmore who grew up in the same neighborhood as him in baltimore i believe who is now in jail for life responsible for a murder mm-hmm. and in that book westmore explores that concept how how does how does this guy go down this path and how does this guy go down the other path it's a very fascinating take. So, you know, surface level, when you ask that question, the answer is everything. The mm-hmm. o- honest answer is everything. And, and, and I think it just depends on so many things. You know, I, another thing that I do regularly that, that most people don't know about is, is I am so attached to human suffering that when I see human suffering, I have to be involved and I have to go there. To the point where, you know, after 9-11, I went to New York. After Hurricane Katrina, I went to New Orleans. After Recently, after the shooting at the Baltimore Church, I went to Baltimore. After Ferguson I, and Mike Brown's killing, I went to Ferguson. I, I don't really talk about these things because I don't go there to do anything in, in a formulaic or a formal matter. I'm, I'm not part of an organization. I'm not an activist. I'm, not, I'm just a human being, mm-hmm. and I'm a human being that recognizes there are people in these situations that are unnecessarily suffering. And, you know, in our country in particular, there has to be ways in which we can leverage the things that we have available to us to stop the unnecessary suffering. And and I wish, honestly, in many ways I was not attached to that because I think it affects me. I think it's actually why I've experienced so many health challenges that I have because I am deeply attached to that human suffering. And so, you know, when I go to these places, I ask that very question I talk about and I ask them, why do you... think this is? Why do you think this has become your permanent reality and become your life and become this neighborhood's life and become the city's life? And and we explore it. But but the thing is, is every situation is unique and different and, and there is no right answer. Mm. Man.
1: Well, I, I have a feeling this is going to be a very long conversation uh, based <laughs> well, on some of what you've said already. I'm up for it. You know, one of the, the, the things that's really interesting to me is the sheer variety of human beings that you have been exposed to in your life. I mean, criminals to, you know, mayors to successful entrepreneurs. And amazingly enough, what I'm really interested in is, you know, what kinds of lessons about human behavior have you learned from people that, you know, we would consider sort of the lower rungs of society, like criminals and, and being in a place like Juarez and, and getting to do that kind of stuff. I mean, what are the the lessons in psychology and human behavior that you have learn from those people that have impacted the way you interact with all these other people?
2: Well, I think, you know, one of the things first and foremost that applies to every area of life is that as an individual, it is very difficult to overcome the circumstances of your environment, of your immediate environment. It is very hard to have willpower and discipline and, and to have uh, a self-awareness uh, about who you are and how you're being in every environment. It doesn't matter if the environment is positive, negative, happy, sad. Most of the time, human beings react and act in, by and large, the way the environment with which they're around is acting. Mm-hmm. And it takes incredible fortitude To be a real leader in an environment, it takes incredible fortitude to have a different opinion, to simply just have a different opinion internally Mm -hmm. without actually even exposing that externally. It doesn't matter the scenario. One of the biggest things that I teach to other entrepreneurs is that very thing if you really want your culture and your business to change, if you really want the human beings that work for you to be very high performers, you have to remember that every human being mostly succumbs to their environment. You could watch the, the, you know, presidential debate where there's 13 different people on the stage that are, you know, type A personalities. These are By and large, what would be considered externally, at least, successful individuals, governors, mayors, senators, CEOs, whatever your label is. And even they, when they are in an environment, will basically come down to that environment Hmm. and behave in that way. And that's just being a human being. And so to have the level of consciousness that is required to... Always be self-aware, and to really be a true leader that has a strong personal opinion, whether it's an agreeable one or not, given that environment, is a very difficult thing to do. So when you ask the question, you know, what do, what can you learn, or what would you learn from, you know, criminals or drug dealers or anyone of that nature, it's actually all the same. Mm -hmm. You learn the same things from CEOs and mayors and everyone else what you learn is it's very difficult to be a unique human being and when you decide to be one, you can actually rise above your environment very difficult but you can do it and when you do you have to recognize that by and large you will not you will always be perceived as a threat and it will become even harder, the more you try to be a unique human being. But if you're commuted, committed to that idea, you can shape things. Mm-hmm. You can shape your neighborhood. You can shape your business. You can shape the world. It, 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 it takes that right balance of crazy you know, ambition and, and, and willpower and, and fortitude with you know a little bit of sane understanding of the environment you're in. Uh-huh. And it's a very delicate process to go through. If, if If you're the lead gang member, you have to be careful because on one hand, you have this balance of, hey, I'm in charge here, I'm the lead guy. On the other hand, everyone literally wants to stab you in the back. If you're the CEO or if you're somebody that wants to put people on Mars, on one hand, that's really awesome. Uh-huh. It's crazy that you have that um, ambition. <laughs> on the other hand, you're an incredible threat to the, the current, the status quo. Uh-huh. You know, and, and, and so you can learn the same thing from everyone, which is envi- overcoming environments are incredibly difficult and require a cr- incredible amount of strength internally, emotionally, physically, mentally, but when it's done, and when it's done well, balancing the crazy with the clear understanding of what you're currently battling, you know, what the status quo is, you can shape your environments, you can shape your house, you can shape your home, you can shape your neighborhoods, you can shape your community, you can shape your businesses, you can shape anything. Hmm. You
1: know, it's interesting because I am listening to you say all of this and it it just kind of is almost mirrors the journey that, you know, you and I have gone on together as mm-hmm. Unmistakable Creative came along and, and kind of mm-hmm. evolved into what it has. And, you know, you and I were just talking even before uh, we officially hit record here about the, the Hatching Twitter book and how
0: mm-hmm. all
1: these things that happened, you're just kind of stunned by when you look into it, like the amount of, <laughs> you know, human conflict that took place between people who are Silicon
2: Valley folk heroes. That's right. That's right. You know, humans have to create meaning out of chaos or we would panic in every situation, whether it's a four-way stop at an intersection or building a business or, you know, solving climate change. It doesn't matter the level at which the problem exists. It's all chaotic because that's nature. Nature is chaotic. Walk outside. But (laughs) What we have to do as human beings to shape environments is we have to calm the chaos. So what we do is is we develop belief systems, we develop mental models, we develop structures, we develop labels. We do all these things because we have to contain the chaos. But the reality is, is the chaos always exists. It's just a matter of of to what degree does that chaos exist. But it's all there. Hmm.
1: So... We've talked about why people don't overcome their environment. Where I want to take this next is talking about the people that you have seen overcome their environment and what it is that you've seen them have in common. Because I know, I mean, you've played an instrumental role in helping me, you know, drastically change a lot of things.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I guess first and foremost, before I answer that question, I, I actually feel like, you know, when you say, you know, you've seen me overcome a lot of things. It, it, frankly, I feel in many respects that I've failed you because I feel. <laughs> Like at the at the moment that you needed that guidance the most, I was incapable of providing it. So, you know, it's that level of suffering at which I take on a lot of times that causes me to have difficulty when I don't see someone who I I know with certainty Mm -hmm. that can overcome those things. When I don't see them doing it, it's it's it creates somewhat of an incredible burden. But to answer your question, what what I see. Well, number one, I think what is underrated in those circumstances and the thing in our in our culture now, in our new-agey, <laughs> self-improvement-y culture that we kind of have going on in our country right now, the thing that is not nearly talked about enough is the role that intelligence and talent plays. Now, I'm a big believer in the idea of grit and resilience. Mm -hmm. I write about it, I talk about it, it's the thing that I'm I'm most attached to. So I'm not here to downplay those things, but I'm also not here to downplay intelligence and talent. I do believe that the reality is, is we are not all born equal, we just aren't. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you can't live a life that doesn't include suffering, it doesn't mean that you can't make a meaningful contribution, to your home, to your family, to your community, to the world even. But it does mean that you can't ignore the idea that individuals who have high levels of IQ and individuals that are born with certain gifts at a level that others of us aren't born with have opportunities to overcome their environments, have greater opportunities to to overcome their environments. Now, that also doesn't mean that they will. Right. There are plenty of people who have those talents, have those gifts of intellect that never do. But if you're looking at the difference between what is possible versus what is probable, Hmm. it is the probability goes up the higher your IQ and the more talented you are. So I just want to put that on the table because I hear conversation after conversation and book after book and interview after interview in this kind of new agey world that we live in, where that is just merely off the table. And in my mind, if it's not on the table, we're not being truthful with ourselves. Now, putting that aside, the things that make the ultimate difference are things such as self-awareness, the capacity to train yourself to know context, to understand who you are in the relation of this environment. Mm -hmm. A lot of us don't have enough self-awareness. We don't know we're the asshole in the room. (laughs) We don't know we're the annoying person talking too much. We don't know we're the person everyone's trying to get away from in this particular scenario. We don't know we're the person everyone's afraid of and won't tell the truth to. Mm That level of self awareness, working on that, being honest and truthful with yourself, of saying, you know, having that kind of observer effect experience where you can observe yourself in real time, saying, you know what? This is interesting. I don't think this person is being truthful with me because I'm coming off as somebody that's too intimidating. Or, you know, this is interesting. I'm the only one talking at this event. Is that because no one else has something to say, or because I'm obnoxious? You know, it's it's really that level of observing our own behavior. That self-awareness goes a really long way. You'll notice that the people that succeed often are the people that are willing to explore that level of self-awareness. The second thing is, is, is incredible resiliency. Life is very chaotic and complicated, and the people who navigate it well if there is such a thing, are, <laughs> are the people who just consistently decide that I can't get enough. They consistently decide that I'm willing to do more or get more or be more. But you can't decide that without two things happening. One, experiencing events that require incredible resilience, uh-huh. like you and I were talking about. I have consistently told you personally, the problems don't go away. Mm-hmm. They only magnify. What changes is your capacity to handle them. Yeah. So it's your capacity to handle them with, with resilience and grit and 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 having the, the wherewithal to, or, or, or the commitment, I mean, to make the sacrifices necessary. So those three things are the things that I see most in people, either – the ones that don't succeed or the ones that do they have decided i'm willing to make these sacrifices i've talked to you about this i've said mm-hmm. to you when you set an intention also write down what is the anti intention right so set a goal you want to you want a million dollars great that's the goal now write down all the things that are going to suck about having a million dollars because there will be plenty of things that are going to suck about having a million you want to be on tv awesome you want a television show Fantastic. Yeah. Now write down all the things that suck about you having your own television show. Mm-hmm. Like you can't go to a restaurant anymore, right? So the, the, the idea of doing that is to recognize these are all the things I have to sacrifice to do this. Mm. Because what we tend to do is, is, is we tend to live in a world in which we're unwilling to make those sacrifices and that only causes us unnecessary suffering, and that's the suffering at which you know that I explore and, and try to resolve. Hmm.
1: Wow! So you say you failed me. Just as you know, for any consolation, it led to a, a really interesting chapter of this book that I'm writing. Uh, but okay. you know, I'm I think ca- the Well
2: let me let me let me point that out though. I, yep. That's a perfect example of resilience, right? So mm-hmm. so you've decided to use that experience that you had last year, mm-hmm. which was a very difficult personal experience for you to go through. And you're now leveraging that experience into how am I becoming a better person as a result? That's the difference between those who make it and those who don't. Well, you know, it's interesting because the chapter
1: is called The Impact Zone, and I've mentioned this on one other episode of the podcast. And so the idea you know, behind the impact zone, the metaphor is this. In surfing, the impact zone is basically where waves are breaking. And it's where you don't want to be, if at all possible. And it basically, what happens is you, the, the, the term is known as caught inside. And what happens is waves come in set. So when you're in the impact zone, you're taking wave after wave after wave after wave on the head. And there's nothing you can do about it. You, you just have to endure it until you get back over the, the set to where the lineup is. And I've always thought that was such a fitting metaphor. But the one thing I think I, I've realized after all of this is that there's nothing that can prepare you for that other than the experience of going through it. Mm-hmm. And once you've gone through it, the next time you experience it, you don't feel nearly
2: as shell-shocked by the whole mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. That's, that's life in a nutshell right there, which is the, the idea or the concept that all you do is just become more aware and you respond rather than react mm. you, you, if, if you're committed to developing the the power of response versus reaction it changes everything right so so you're we are the only species that has the capacity to pause between stimulus and response right right so so every other species whatever the stimulus is they they don't have the level of brain function typically to be able to think about their response first Mm -hmm. before they respond. They simply react. Humans do that too. Unless and until we decide and commit that we are going to actually pause and learn and apply something differently this time. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we'll just do the same stimulus, react, stimulus, react as well. And that's exactly what you're describing here is that you've taken the time to reflect on a horrible experience of your life. You've taken the time to say to myself, what did I learn? How could I do this better? What skills do I need to improve on to navigate this differently next time? You've done all the things you have to do. Because the next time around, it'll happen again. Mm-hmm. And the next time around, you will, one, be aware it's happening now. And number two, you will pause, whether it's brief or long, and you will choose your response rather than simply just react. And that's powerful. And that, that's, that's incredible to have that capacity and it should be valued highly.
1: So, this raises lots of questions about this period. You know, just for personal reasons and because I think that they're, they're useful and, and interesting to talk about. Do you think that that capacity to pause between stimulus and response can only be learned by not doing it properly, like going through it?
2: <laughs> I don't know. I, I I don't I I don't have the research. To, to know the correct answer to that I bet there are people who have explored that in significant ways whether they're mm-hmm. Carol Dweck you know maybe Carol Dweck might be a person to go to or even Brene Brown mm-hmm. those are two individuals who I would explore that question with further that that, that would have the you know that, that would have the the data mm-hmm. to answer that question correctly I don't know I know I, I'll tell you for me personally I used to not have the capacity to figure out how to pause and have that response without it just happening. You know, I I grew up that way. I I never really learned of a better way. I'll tell you for me personally, what has changed is meditation. Mm. So when I started meditating, when I was 23 years old, I went 10 straight years having never missed a single day of meditation. I made the full commitment to myself that I would be willing to make whatever sacrifice necessary to never miss a single day of meditation. After about, I I, I experimented with that for 30 days. I said, I'm not gonna miss a day for 30 days. I started to see improvement in my life, both in my anger and in my reactionary nature and in my aggressiveness. It, It started to diminish. And so I said, okay, I'm not gonna miss another 30 days. So I went 60 days. And then I said, I'm not gonna miss another 30 days. And then I said, I'm not gonna miss a year. And then that turned into two years, three years, four years, et cetera. So I got up to 10 straight years without missing a single day of meditation. It's the only thing in my entire life that <laughs> I've ever done that much consistency with, other than maybe, you know, watch House of Cards on Netflix. Might be <laughs> the only other thing that I was committed to that deeply. But it changed my life it, 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 in very real fundamental ways, right? Like it didn't change my, I, I didn't become spiritual. Right. I didn't become, you know, a monk. Or, or, or anything of that nature. It, it literally changed, it, it literally rewired my brain. So what happened was, is I became less aggressive and less reactionary. I, I, I grew up uh, having to survive in some very real ways. You know, I was a street kid at the age of six, where I was literally on the street, making money at six. In, in order to do that, I had to become very tough you know, and, and very aggressive and, and very, hey, I'm running this corner. I run this street. I run this neighborhood you know, type of attitude. And, and of course, that spilled over, spilled over into my adult life in, in very inappropriate ways because I was navigating environments in which I didn't need to be aggressive. I didn't need to always win. I didn't need to be the best. I didn't need to be observed as the best, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't, you know, so, so that aggressiveness and that, that intense competitiveness actually started to harm me in new environments. It was actually a, a negative instead of a positive. And so through the meditation, it calmed a lot of that, it released a lot of that, where instead of just immediately becoming reactionary, I, I, I was developing the capacity for pause. And and thoughtfulness, Mm -hmm. thoughtfulness in whom I'm interacting with, thoughtfulness in the environments I'm in, thoughtfulness in how I'm going to respond. Now, I still am an, an aggressive person by nature, I think it's just, you know, <laughs> built, built in. Yeah,
1: I have, I have it, some things to say about that.
2: <laughs> it's built in, you know, yeah. it, it competitiveness, aggressiveness. You know, I mean, when I, when I think about starting new businesses, I think about finding the biggest fish in the biz, business, biggest pond mm-hmm. and drowning him, right? <laughs> I, that's the first thing that comes to my head. Yeah. So I still have that competitive nature and, mm-hmm. and aggressiveness, no doubt. But it's, it's, it's subdued in a lot of ways. I, I'm much more thoughtful much more uh, responsive instead of reactionary. So, So if you're asking me personally, that's the way I've dealt with it. I don't know if that works for everyone. I don't have any data, but that has certainly worked for me.
1: Okay lots of stuff to say about the, the competitiveness and aggressiveness, and we'll get to that in just a second, because there's one other question I have about this piece on, on resiliency. Two, two questions, actually. One is, 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 can this be learned? And then, you know, as somebody who cracked in a, a moment of, of challenge, why do you think certain people crack? Like what? I mean, I, I obviously have figured out how to bounce back, but I'm just curious, like what causes people to crack?
2: I don't know the technical psychology behind that. So so I'm I'm apprehensive about giving you the exact answer. Right. So so when I give you these answers, I give you these answers based on my personal experiences. And I think that's important to note because Mm -hmm. I'm not a psychologist. I don't have a PhD. You know, this is just this is just Greg's street knowledge of of years and years and years of, of, of dealing with this stuff. And and not just dealing with it, but actually, you know, I write about it, I research it a lot. I, I explore it in very deep ways, so mm-hmm. so I do believe I have strong opinions on this for valid reasons, but I, I'm hesitant to give you uh, direct answers because I don't know you know the science behind it, or or, or I should say I'm not uh, you know educated in that way to actually tell you. Mm-hmm. However, what I would say to that is is the things that I've observed, and in particular even with you, is that that you know some people have built up that resiliency much stronger than, than others. And, and, and frankly, I think in your cases, you've been coddled in a lot of ways over yep. your lifetime. So, so, you know, having known you very personally and know your parents and know your upbringing and, 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 and all those things, what happens is, is that when your when your worldview mm-hmm. is shattered and 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 your belief system is completely upended, that it should not be, the expectation should not be that you should handle that well. Right. You you shouldn't handle that well. <laughs> uh, if you did, you're a sociopath. Quite frankly, like like in literal terms, right. it's likely that you have those wires in your brain turned off and and you are literally likely a, a sociopath. So so the fact that you didn't handle that experience well is not not at all a problem. It's the the norm, the expectation. Now, what happens over the course of your lifetime, of course, is when your worldview is rattled and your belief system is shaken and 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 you become fragile, it's it's the resiliency, it's getting through that with resiliency and grit. Mm. What happens is you build layers of an onion, if you will, that that give you the capacity to handle that much differently the next time around. So right. so you know it 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 kind of goes back to the, you know, uh, what does not kill you makes you stronger type of, type of mentality. I, I don't know if I always believe that because yeah. I think that some people can find themselves in such fragile situations that it's, it's literally unrecoverable. Yeah. You know, some people have, you know, a spouse die or, or a child experience a dr- traumatic illness or, or whatever it might be, right, that, that, that rattles them so deep. Mm-hmm. That 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 they become so fragile that they just can't overcome it. But I do believe, you know, by and large, most things that that us as human beings experience are overcomable. And and what happens is is, is we experience this, this major shakeup, and it's and we're very vulnerable for a period of time, and and we're very fragile. But we slowly come out of it. You know, you you You, slow, you know, you have your first real breakup. Mm-hmm. What do you do? You know, you you, you, you <laughs> don't leave the bed. You don't leave the house. You, you eat the ice cream. You you cry a lot. You, you consult, you know, consult your friends to cry on their shoulder, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But eventually you pick yourself up and you realize, you know what, I got to get the abs back. Mm-hmm. I got to I got to start reading again. <laughs> You know, you get yourself in the gym and, and you start exercising and, you know, you hang out with your buddies again or, or you know, you, you, you call your girlfriends and you have a girls night or whatever it <laughs> might be, right? You know, you, you start to get yourself back on your feet slowly and, yeah. and you allow yourself to repair it, it, and then you start being vulnerable again, and, and you start putting yourself out there. But that happens with with a significant amount of resilience, and that's definitely learned. That it, you know, some people are born with different levels, but it's definitely learned. It's 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 a learned uh, behavior and mindset. Yeah. Well.
1: So uh, I want to talk about the intensity because I I can't help but comment on this. I've gotten to see the byproduct (laughs) of that intensity. And, you know, it's funny because I saw it, you know, in two two situations and one was, you know, in building the unmistakable creative. You know, Brad, who can attest to this, will, will you know, mm-hmm. absolutely say that this is true. And anybody who worked on it can say that. Mars Dorian as well. And then, of course, on the instigator experience. And, and you know, the way it's mm-hmm. funny because that process has really kind of been fundamental to how we do everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question, you know, I always say, I'm like, I'm going to regret the day I came up, you know, with the idea of unmistakable because literally Even, you know, the woman who's coaching me through writing this book, every question says, how does this relate to being unmistakable anytime I start to meander with the book? Mm -hmm. And the way I describe this is that you will hate the process, but you will love the result. And, you know, that sort of mindset has infused every single thing that we still do to this day. I mean, even this whole pancake series, The Compass, which was a collection of essays that we did and gave away for free. I mean, I must have you know made our, our layout and design person do a hundred iterations of it, and we were making changes mm-hmm. to the last day, and a lot of that came from you.
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because, uh, you know, in some ways I'm just built that way. In other ways, I do that by design because I I, I believe in such a high level of excellence. I, I I am so committed to such a high level of excellence in everything that I do, that I'm, I'm a maniac. I mean, the, 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 well, I mean, literally like, like the truth is, is I am not a pleasant person to be around. I'm, I'm really just not. And, and, and I'm accepting of that. And, 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 and I'm hopeful that the, the, the people that are close to me are accepting of that because in order to be close to me, I'm, you know, it's, it's an experience as you can attest to, yeah. you know, there's, there's many times where you and I are together and I don't say a fucking word to you. I remember and it's uncomfortable. One day. Yeah. And it's not, it's not pleasing and it's it, it, but what's going on in my mind is so intense and you're going to experience the positive outcomes of it oh, if yeah. you just give me the time and space to produce it right so so i recognize you know my good friend elizabeth we were at dinner recently and and we were with one of her best friends and her best friend asked how would you in one word how would you describe greg and her word was intense and I think that's an accurate word. And, and intense doesn't mean mean mm-hmm. or brutal or disrespectful. Intense means I feel everything at such a high level that that it's intense to be around me. It's 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 everything is going to be so masterful and so magnificent and so amazing and so phenomenal and so excellent. It's intense. Mm-hmm. It's really, really intense. And, and I feel that. I honestly believe that I am going to die young because <laughs> of that intensity. I really do. And, and I've come to terms with it. I'm okay with my intensity because, because I believe that the byproduct that I'm going to leave behind uh-huh. will be so much greater than if I worked on lowering my intensity, which I could do. I could take on the challenge of lowering my intensity, but I don't believe that the impact I will make on this world will be as great if I commit to the idea of accepting my intensity and, you, and harnessing it in ways that produce meaningful, long-lasting contributions to the people in my life and to this world. And that's the commitment that I've made to it. And you've seen that up front oh, yeah. where, where I am... I am relentless. That's probably the best way to put it it, with it. And, and it's all for the end product. It's, it's, it's all for the outcome we're going for. And if we can agree that we all want that outcome Mm -hmm. and there's any way you can bear me, which for a lot of people, frankly, they can't (laughs) parted ways you know, and, and, and that's okay. And, 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 and many people even that I've remained friends with, but I don't do work with, or, Mm -hmm. you know, we're friends, but we're not super close friends or whatever it might be. Right. You know, it's that level, you know, what, what is the degree of intensity we're going to endure? But I'm committed to that. I, I, I think it's an accurate representation that I am, I'm an intense person. And, and, we have to arrive at a place, if we're in a relationship together, whatever level of relationship, that we're okay with it, mm-hmm. that, that, that we're going to be okay with it. And that's not an easy thing to do.
1: No, uh, it's not. And I, like, like you said, I've, I've experienced it firsthand. And it's interesting because with Brian, I get the same commitment to ex- excellence without the intensity. And it's a really interesting contrast yeah, to see the two yeah. of you. Right. But, you know, I mean, he we still, you know, we look at everything we do through that lens of unmistakable. You know, the, the commitment that we've made to put out a quality product week after week. It's like you know, we'll look at something and, and our filter has been okay. If we don't feel it, nobody will. And I, you know, I remember one moment very specifically, and you might remember this, the, you know, we walk into the the venue at the instigator experience and the chairs have black seats with black cushions. And I'm like, fuck, here we go. <laughs> it was like, and I look at you and you're like, I said, I, and I remember I like, you know, I'm like, I didn't want to tell you because I didn't feel like having a three hour conversation about <laughs> cushion covers. <laughs> I'm like, really, honestly, I'm like, what did, knew, what did
2: I want? White,
1: white, white. And and That's I remember it. thinking, I'm like, you know, because I knew that if I knew that if I waited until that moment, you wouldn't be able to do anything about it. And, <laughs>
2: That's, right. That's right. I have to just concede because there's nothing. Yeah.
1: And, and that is something I learned about working with you was to yeah. be selective in certain moments. Like I remember, I'm like, you know, I remember we got a, an email from Amy. She said, Trini, has Greg seen the name tags? And I was like, you know what? If Greg sees the name tags, we'll have to make 200 changes to them. <laughs> they're good. Trust me. They're up to his standard.
2: That's right. And, and they were. And, and, you know, what
1: what was interesting is, you know, when I look at what we put together and I look at that event and anybody who's there can describe this for you, I think we completely shattered the standards by which people were used to experiencing an event. And I I don't think that they'll experience anything like that again until we do another event.
2: Well, you know, well, here's two things about that. I hope that's not the case, to be honest. (laughs) I hope they do experience that elsewhere because I hope that our world has that commitment to creating that humanistic experience for people that is that, that level of excellence but I also hope that that is what they experienced with us because I I take pride in that and I know you do too and you you've really worked hard at that over the last couple of years to to really to really what I equate that intensity to quite honestly is thoughtfulness mm-hmm. I I I think that that people have difficulty interacting with me because I tend to think think of everything at a level of human experience. So I'll give you a simple example that really I think is apropos to what you're describing. So I, I was at a local cafe the other day and I ordered oatmeal and I was sitting down eating my oatmeal. There was an older couple having a meal and they ran out of coffee. And at this particular establishment, you it's self-serve. So you go up to the coffee machine up front and you get a refill. A woman was walking around cleaning tables and the older gentleman was there with his wife, and, and he said, Oh, I'm out of copy. Is it possible to get a refill? And she said, Yes, it's self serve. It's up there at the front of the room. I can't, that's a difficult answer for me to accept. I listen to her, and I think to myself, There is zero thoughtfulness. That answer you will give to every single human being that walks into this restaurant. Instead of having a human experience, you are having a robot experience. Mm -hmm. The answer is, we are self-serve, it's in the front of the room. That's not a thoughtful answer. In my world, the answer is, yes, sir, it's normally self-serve, but I can see that you guys are enjoying your meal, let me get you a refill. And she can go and get that refill for him. So when I'm observing the world, that's the lens at which I'm observing it through. Mm -hmm. There is a deeper human connection that could have happened in that moment that in my world is a a gravely, gravely lost opportunity. Mm -hmm. The human connection that woman could have had, had with that man would have been profound in their lives going forward. I really, truly believe that. A lot of people will think, who gives a shit, just mm-hmm. get the coffee. I believe that as humans, our brains are wired in a way that we get to have profound experiences all the time. So when I observe that experiences, experience, I'm actually in pain for both of them <laughs> because I feel like they're not having a profound human experience. It was a robotic response and it could have been profound. And, and that's kind of apropos to how I see the world. And it's actually why I don't do well online and actually why I don't do well with labels. Uh-huh. Listen, if you want to invite me to come over to your house and sit in your living room and have a conversation about your life and my life and your business or my business or the world, I am literally on the first plane out. I don't care if I know you or not. I will sit in your living room and do that. If you want to send me a fucking tweet mm-hmm. about some product you've launched, I don't <laughs> give a fuck. And that's the world that I live in. And i it's not that I don't care about the product you launched. Yeah. It's that I have to have profound experiences with you. And I want you to have profound experiences with me. And I will literally spend every dollar I have and every waking moment i have ensuring that we have that whether we know each other or not mm-hmm. because we're connected as human beings i'm committed to that but i can't play the shell game mm-hmm. i just can't play it and it doesn't it just doesn't work for me and 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 that's what you're describing with the instigator experience or elsewhere it's that deep and, yes. they, you know, and it's that intense.
1: Well, I, I got to see it firsthand. I mean, I think the the really interesting thing for me, you know, to watch sort of moments that you helped orchestrate and even infuse, you know, sort of my thoughts and creativity into it was, you know, every moment you're asking, how do you keep people on the edge of their seat? How do you keep delivering the unexpected? I mean, from the moment they arrived, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, it was so thoughtful, I think, it, like you said. Every detail is so well thought out, and you know it's funny because that infuses every single thing that we do now.
2: Yeah, so so you can take that. So the question is, to what degree do you do that? You know, <laughs> yeah. for the listener, you know, for the listener listening, saying, "I don't want to be that intense," or "I'm not that intense," or, you know, yeah. whatever, You don't have to be right. So so it's about the degree at which. You want to have that level of thoughtfulness. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be looked at as an, a personal attack, right? So so your level of thoughtfulness may d- be different than my level of thoughtfulness. That doesn't make me any better or you any worse or vice versa. It's just the degree you want to make that commitment to the work, right? Mm-hmm. So, so as a listener listening to this, the way I would uh, uh, consume this information and apply it is I would just examine. I would say to myself, okay, where do I want to increase the degrees of thoughtfulness in my life and my work, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that's your website or, or your customer service or, or how you're interacting with your children. Just, just consider that because it, it, it will create deeper, more profound connections. And if you're interested in that, it's just a matter of degree. It's, it's mm-hmm. just a matter of, of, of applying that to different degrees.
1: Wow. Well, let's do this. Let's talk about this idea of resilience and grit and success in a bit more detail. And the direction I want to take this actually is not about, you know, what cultivates resiliency and grit or, or, you know, what, you know, constitutes it or how do we get it. But really this came from, oddly enough, a conversation that's come full circle, because I remember this was the night before the Instigator experience. It was the day before our setup. You and I were sitting around having dinner, and we were talking about the venture capitalist, Chris Saka. And you said to me that, you know, he had said that nobody thinks that their idea is not the best idea in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, because I I got to hear Chris Saka on an interview with Tim Ferriss, and I saw him also give a commencement speech. And one of the things that he talked about was this idea of an inevitability of success, mm-hmm. which you and I have talked about to some degree or another, that everybody who does something of significance has that, they believe that, and, and nothing can convince them otherwise. I mean, mm-hmm. even Justine, when she talked about Elon, uh, mm-hmm. when we talked about the psychology of visionary, she said there's an unshakable conviction and faith. And she said, I don't want to get all deterministic, but that's not something that Can be bred or or, or created. It's only you are born that way. Mm -hmm. I believe her. Yeah, I I do too. And so I am really curious. Just one, I want to hear what you have to say about all this. Like this whole idea of an inevitability of success is the inevitability of success something that we can learn, or is it just something that some people inherently have?
2: Yes. The answer to that is yes. And so, first of all, let me say this I absolutely love Justine Musk. And if there's any way she's listening to this, I just want her to know that I highly value. Her thoughts and opinions on the world. I think she is phenomenal, and if, for the listeners who haven't listened, please go listen to the interviews that Srini has done with her. I'll because, be sure to link it up in the show notes. Yeah, it's please really do because I, I really just think that talk about thoughtfulness. Like she mm. just has a level of thoughtfulness that I admire. So, back to your, your your question, your thought on this is: Are you born with that, or is that something you can learn? That 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 inevitableness of success. I, I think it's really interesting because I, I think it takes multiple shapes. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I agree with her in that there is a certain fraction of the population that is born with that. And they know it, and the rest of the world knows it. It's Tiger Woods when he's three, right? and Tiger Woods when he's seven, and Tiger Woods when he's 10, and 12, and 16, and 19, and 22. Every single time anyone talked to Tiger Woods, It was inevitable Tiger Woods was going to be Tiger Woods. That exists. That's very real, right? It's very real. It exists with people like Elon Musk. It exists with people like Mark Zuckerberg. It exists, uh, you know, with people like Mother Teresa or Mm -hmm. Oprah, right? They are born that way. They are going to be successful. And what happens, unfortunately, with them is that they are the role models. Mm -hmm they are the role models of success and i believe that's dangerous because while they are models of success no doubt they are not real models for the majority of society and what happens is is that our view of success gets distorted number 1 mm-hmm. number 2 our views of how to achieve success get distorted And number three, the ways in which we tell their stories, by and large, do not include the inherent abilities that they have, right? Michael Phelps wins eight gold medals in a single Olympics. Why? Because he was born Michael Phelps. Now, is that the only reason why? No. So what we focus on are all the other reasons, Mm -hmm. right? We don't focus on that he's 6'8". He was born with abnormally long arms. He was born with a lung capacity in the top percentile of the world. He was born that way. We can't get that. You and I jump into a pool and we flail around. Right? right? We try to hold our breath and it's 12 seconds later and we think the world's going to end. Right? Michael Phelps was born that way. But that's not a great story. Mm-hmm. That's not a 30 minute expose leading up to Michael Phelps' gold medal winning race. That's not the cover of Wheaties or the cover of Time Magazine or Sports Illustrated. It's not going to say, Michael Phelps won eight gold medals, born that way. <laughs> that's boring. Yeah. That's not hopeful. That's not helpful. To the rest of us, right? Mm -hmm. So what we do is we paint pictures and we tell stories about all the other things Michael Phelps did, which are very legitimate and completely valid, right? Michael Phelps ate 4,000 calories in a single meal. He consumed 10,000 calories a day. Okay, so immediately now I'm thinking, shit, if I want to be an Olympic athlete, I got to eat a lot more, right? So Michael Phelps swam six hours a day. He was in a pool six hours a day. All right. Well, shit, I better go over to LA Fitness and hop in that pool today and get in at least two hours. And tomorrow I better wake up at 6 a.m. and jump in for three, right? So what happens is is we tell the rest of the story, but we leave out the talent Mm -hmm. or we leave out the intelligence. And when we leave out the talent and intelligence, we tell a hopeful story, an inspiring story, a story in which you and I get to hold on to as possibility. But once again, we mistake possibility with probability. Is it possible that you or I could win a gold medal for something? It's possible. Curling. We're both, we're, that's right. We're both <laughs> human beings. I don't know. I could probably do that trampoline thing they do. Maybe you and I could do the luge. Yeah. I'm not exactly. sure. Right? right? We could, might be able to find something. We might be able to conjure up enough money to commit to it. We might throw away every other thing in our lives and dedicate the next six years to it, et cetera, et cetera. Right? We could do all the other things that Michael Phelps did. Yep. And we might win a gold medal, or we can at least compete in the Olympics, right? Make the Olympic team. That would be considered a massive success if you and I made an Olympic team, <laughs>
3: yeah. right?
2: So that's very possible, very possible. Is it probable? No. Mm-hmm. No, it's not probable. But here in America, and in particular in the new agey, self-helpy world that we live in, we hang on to the possible. Should we hang on to the possible? Absolutely. Absolutely we should hang on to the possible because it's the possible which brings innovation it's the possible that tells us the future includes self you know self driving cars it's the possible that tells us someday we will have cured diabetes it's the possible that helps us understand that our that our family members that are dying of cancer will not die in vain for fighting the battle it's the possible that tells us life is worth living just from the beginning but If possible isn't tempered with probable, if we don't do certain things that help us increase the probability of our success in certain areas, all we're doing is hanging on to the possible, which means all we're doing is hanging on to hope. And if all we're doing hanging on to hope, it is likely that we will unnecessarily suffer. That's actually what happens when we live in a world that is only grabbing on to possibility and hope. What happens is we suffer when we don't increase the probability of improvement. So it it takes all forms. When When the candidate running for the president of the United States runs on the platform of hope and change, but can't actually physically manifest real-world changes that increase the probability that someone will no longer be on food stamps, it actually increases their pain. Mm -hmm. It actually increases their suffering. And that goes for us as individuals and every other piece of life, that if we only read the blogs that are inspiring and we only interact with the people on the internet in hopeful ways, and we aren't truthful and honest about our current circumstances and and the uphill battle that it's really going to take, if we don't talk about the sacrifices that are necessary on the flip side of success, if we aren't willing to accept the anti-intention for getting the intention, we will only unnecessarily suffer. And that's what I see everywhere. And that's the difference between the people that are determined, you know, that are born with this inevitable success Mm -hmm. and the people that are trying to develop it. The people that are born that way, they don't need all the other stuff. They don't read the books or the blogs, or they don't need the emotional support. They don't need the inspiring information or the 30-minute read-up or, or expose up to the race. They don't need that stuff to hang on. Mm-hmm. They were born in a way that they are just going to win no matter what. And so those people are not good models to follow. For the rest of us, what we should be doing is we should be creating a safe, environment in which we can be as vulnerable as we need to be to not only hold on to the possible, but to actually increase our chances of the probable. And we don't create those environments for ourselves. As a society, as a government, as businesses, as a culture in America, we tend not to create vulnerable environments that allow us to be safe enough, to be exposed enough, to actually increase our probabilities. So what we do is we, one, look at all these examples of people that don't need that, Mm. and we try to live like them. And then we fail, and then we experience unnecessary suffering, and then two, we hold on. We, we can't find the safe places to explore our vulnerabilities and our flaws and the fact that it's not probable for us to be like them. So what we do is we go to the safe places. The safe places are the, uh, the motivational events. The safe places are the places where everyone else is pretending to be happy. The safe places are the Internet and the television, and the happy commercials, and all the things that allow us to avoid looking at the things that are not increasing our probabilities of success. And that's where we tend to spend the majority of our time. So while it's possible for you and I to increase our probability of being, of more of an inevitability towards success, Mm -hmm. we tend to not do it because it's very vulnerable and hard and exposing. And we don't have the the places to go do that out it's only it's only to play that out it's only happening in the recesses of our own mind and that's a very lonely place to be man
1: so much stuff to say about this i, I think that uh, the culture of the internet and you know i mean to some degree i, I, I contribute to it mm-hmm. knowingly <clears throat> has perpetuated this sort of mantra of false hope like mm-hmm. we see the tim ferrisss of the world you see the chris gillabos of the world and we've sold people this message that this is accessible to you. This is possible for you. Mm-hmm. And I think you and I have talked about this before. I always felt the internet was like a developing country. I said, if this is possible, why is this, the disparity
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the level of success that people are experiencing, is it so severe? It, it feels like a developing country.
2: Yeah, well, so there's a couple of things there, right? So, so the first is you're looking at examples that are outliers. Mm-hmm. So if you are not born an outlier, to look at examples that are outliers is actually causing you more harm than good. Yeah. Number two, it, while, while you can utilize them for inspiration at times or things like that, if you, are, if you are obsessed with them, if you are consuming everything they produce, if you are trying to live their life, et cetera, that's when it becomes harmful. Number two, it, 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 it's inevitable that because we are not born equal,
0: mm-hmm.
2: that the world will forever work in unequal balances. So your, your idea of it feels more like a developing country, actually, I don't know if that's an accurate analogy because the real analogy is the internet is a lot like America,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? There's 1% and there's yeah. everybody else,
1: Yeah, that's right? True.
2: And, and, and the way that that is is because it's an open source platform. Mm-hmm. So, so in the internet, it's the wild, wild west. Just like in America, it's the wild, wild west, right? So, so y- y- you can create and manipulate the scenario to work in your favor if you're really intelligent, really smart, and really connected. So, so, you know, somebody that's really intelligent, really smart, and really connected can paint a picture on the internet that says, I'm really smart, I'm really intelligent, I'm really talented, and I'm really connected, therefore, pay attention to me. Mm-hmm. Then, once, once people start paying attention, there, there's actually a term for this, and, and I was just talking to somebody about this last night, and of course, the term escapes me at the moment, but once it's inevitable, the inevitability just stacks on top of it, right? So, so I've used the analogy a lot of times that, like, I could create a blog today, mm-hmm. I could literally every day. Copy, go on Seth Godin's blog, copy his blog, paste it on my blog, right? I can do that every single, everyone talks about content is king, bullshit, right? So, So I can do that every single day, right? Seth blogs every day. As soon as Seth publishes, I go to his blog, I copy, I start my own blog, I paste it. Now, let's pretend the rest of the world doesn't know I've done that. The rest of the world doesn't know that's duplicate content. Do you think I will have book deal after book deal and success after success, and attention after attention, and people will share all my stuff online if I did that. No. No. Of course not. Of course not. Why? I'm not Seth Godin. Uh-huh. I am not the name Seth Godin. That's the difference. Yeah. So Seth Godin is Seth Godin, so therefore he becomes more of Seth Godin. And that's the reality that we live in, where That's why the disparity gets greater and greater and greater. There's a thing about this. It's it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon of how the world works in that way. So that's always going to exist, right? So if you're popular online, you're going to get more popular because you're popular. Mm -hmm. It's not because you're better. It's because you're popular at some point. It's the popularity effect that just takes over at some point. So that's the second thing. You always have to anticipate that disparity will always be there. Then the third thing is that I believe that, that too many people are spending too much time in the possible bubble. Mm-hmm. And they're not doing things to truly increase their probability of success. They don't have enough really smart people, and I mean legitimately, like intelligently smart and, 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 and deeply experienced people in their lives telling them that's a mistake. What you're doing right there is a mistake. I know you want to do it because it's fun. I know you want to do it because Tim Ferriss does it. I know you want to do it because Oprah does it. But it's a mistake for you to do it. And here's why. They don't have people like that in their lives that one, would tell them that. Mm -hmm. Two, they don't typically have the, they haven't reached the level of consciousness where they would even be inviting to that type of feedback. And three, most of us are too fragile to accept that type of feedback. That would destroy us. That would crush us. That would mean we're not worthy. That would mean we're not valuable. That would mean our self-worth is not worth anything, right? So, so we don't create the environments, everything from the moment you're bor- born to wherever you're at today, to actually be exposed in those ways, to actually develop true, to develop what you need to develop to increase the actual probability of real success in your life. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, it, it kind of makes me think of a couple of different things. One was, you know, when you and I first started uh, working together, one of the things you made me do is stop doing a lot of things. Yes. Like tons. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what am I going to do for money? And you're like, <laughs> I, I remember so you're like, you don't want to be a book marketing strategist. You asked me one question, I think that really is actually, you know, worth bringing up again. You said, do you want to do any of those things five years from now? Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at this, I said, I, God, I hope not. You know, I I really hope not. And and I'm not doing any of those things. And And somehow
2: you've still made money.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, not as much as I've wanted, but yeah, (laughs) you know, and it's it's always a work in progress. The other thing I think is that, you know, you brought up people uh, telling you, and I've mentioned this on the show before. Brian, you know, before he decided to join me, I remember very distinctly, and I've told this story once before on the show, but I think it bears repeating and I'm very interested to hear your perspective on it. This was in November of last year when we knew, you know, the instigator experience 2.0 was not going to happen and and the business was just, you know, flailing. Mm -hmm. And I asked him what his biggest concerns were and and what he thought were the challenges. He said, right now, Srini, you're the biggest liability in the entire business. Mm -hmm. That's
2: That's a good business partner, by the way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and and you know, I, I think about why I was able to navigate the period, and I'm, I'm, I know this because it's fresh on my mind since I'm writing this chapter. I said, you know, unconditional support from somebody like him made all the mm-hmm. difference in the world, mm-hmm. and it provided a lot of the awareness that you're talking about.
2: Mm-hmm. That's so critical, and we don't we don't develop the skill of allowing that into our lives. We don't develop the skill of giving other people the space to be able to do that, right? Mm-hmm. So, so if Brian wasn't a very strong personality, like if he didn't feel safe saying that to you, he would never say that to you despite believing that, mm-hmm. right? I just had this conversation with an organization that I've done some work with. It's a, it's a medical clinic that's uh, very prominent. And, and I had a conversation with one of the employees over there that was telling me everything that they wouldn't tell to someone else in the company, right? If you can't create an environment in which those things can actually be said, game over, you lose. Mm -hmm. It's not going to help anyone. And for most of us, we don't create the environment in which the people around us can tell us the truth. We don't. We don't. One, we need people that will. But two, we need to actually create an environment in which they feel safe doing it. And then three, we need to develop the, the mindset and the wherewithal and the capacity to accept it. It doesn't even mean it's true, right? So, someone could, so Brian could come to you and say, Srini, you're the biggest liability in the business. That could, that may or may not be true. In that case, it probably was true. Yeah. <laughs> but in other cases, it, it might not be, right? But you need people that are willing to say it. Uh-huh. And you need to be willing to take it in in an honest, unbiased way. And they need to feel safe doing so. We don't create those environments, which is why I did the $10 in the laptop project. You know, I traveled around the country going to all 50 states, literally sitting in people's living rooms by design. Mm-hmm. In all 50 states by design, because I didn't want to have this superficial conversation online from my from my own living room, mm-hmm. right? From my laptop. I wanted to sit in your living room, and you and I did this. Mm-hmm. Your living room, right? Yeah, you literally. and I sat in your living room, having deep, deep deep, profound conversations about us, about you, about me, about your business, about your life, about my life. And you lost
1: at NBA 2K14 multiple times. That's true. That is true.
2: (laughs) For the the record, I am not good at NBA (laughs) 2K14 or whatever the name of it is. I am not a good video gamer, I got to be honest. But but you and I sat there and did that, right? and, And I did that with countless people, literally thousands Mm -hmm. of people in this country, everywhere. Alaska, Moore, Oklahoma, Kansas City, Missouri, you know, Los Angeles, Detroit, wherever. The reason I did that was because I knew, I'm so committed to creating safe spaces for true improvement, for real life improvement, that I knew that if I talked to all those people I had interactions with on the internet, or I talk to them via social media, or even a blog, or even email, we would never have a deep enough, safe enough environment to get to the heart of the matter mm-hmm. and really improve, like deeply profound improvements in my life and their life. And so that's why I did that project. See, everyone wanted that project to be about me. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell us your life story. Tell us why you gave away everything you owned. Tell us how you went from $10 to $10 million. Tell us how you, you know, like, like all the superficial, in my mind, superficial things that are related. Now, those things are fun. They're fun to talk about and they're interesting and engaging. But they're also hurtful. Mm-hmm. They're hurtful because they keep people in the place of possibility only. Which, what is much more helpful is that I don't write a blog and I don't write a book. And I don't tell you about all the inspiring things I've done in my life, but instead, literally, just you and me get in a fucking living room together mm-hmm. and hash it out um, in a safe environment where, where you feel safe and I feel safe, that it's never going to go anywhere else between, but between you and I, and where it's literally going to genuinely improve our lives. Not superficially pretend to improve our lives, but actually improve our lives. And, and that experience was so profound for me in the improvement of my life And I hope it was for the people that I I did that with, that that we don't need books and blogs and and Twitter accounts to to talk about it. We could have just had the experience, and it was the experience. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm always trying to create, which makes me very hard to participate in a marketplace of sell me all the things you know, tell me all the things you know, and sell me all the things that you've done that are inspiring. I, 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 it's, it's a struggle for me to play in that space.
1: Wednesday on The Unmistakable Creative, Greg and I continue our conversation. Here's a sneak peek.
2: And those attachments, those attachments, those you cannot go any further than that which you are attached to. You just can't. So if you want to go to a new place, let go.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in to this spotlight on this podcast that we are so excited about. We hope it supports you and gives you inspiration and even more access to growth in your day-to-day life. In the meantime, we will see you next week for a regularly scheduled U-Turn podcast episode. Can't wait to see you there. Thanks again.